Today may be the most unpopular uh, Advent sermon because no one wants to talk about spending less at Christmas. Uh, when I think of, of spending less, I think of Ebenezer Scrooge. I think of him sitting at his desk counting his coins. And uh, can we just give a hand to all of our, our actors who have... Uh, <clears throat> they've done just a great job with, uh, with these skits. Uh, Scrooge is not the kind of Christmas that uh, we want to embrace. When we think of Christmas, we think of abundance, which in our minds usually costs money. So spending less on the outset seems like the antithesis of generosity, which is what Christmas is all about. But not only does spending less seem anti-Christmas, it seems downright impossible. Because not only do we have advertisements shouting at us that we haven't finished our Christmas shopping, but there's this ever-growing list in our minds of people that we have to buy gifts for, from our kids' teachers to family members to our small groups to the people we meet in, in the community to the office gift exchange. The list of people that we have to buy for is constantly growing. And heaven forbid you have one of these situations where someone hands you a gift and they weren't on your list to begin with, and so now you have to have backup gifts. You have to have gifts that you keep in your desk and in your car just in case this scenario arises and you go, oh yes, here's a gift. I was thinking of you too. Here's this generic gift that I picked out especially for you. So there's something else that we have to prepare for. And while the list and the sentiments behind the gift are good, we love people and we want them to feel cared for, the results honestly can create frenzy, pressure, hurry, discontent, sometimes even anger and resentment. They shroud what God has for us at Christmas and what the season of Advent anticipates. Research shows that the average American will spend somewhere close to an entire paycheck on gifts at Christmas. And more importantly, that's an entire paycheck that they didn't budget for. Every year there are surveys that circulate asking people how much they intend to spend on Christmas. And then after Christmas, there are surveys that circulate asking people how much they actually spent on Christmas. And which one of those do you think is higher? What they actually spent on Christmas is so much more than what they anticipate spending. One of the interesting stats that I read found that Americans spent $9 billion in gift cards last year, which is what you get someone when you don't really know what to get them, right? You add to that the cost of travel, food, family Christmas cards, entertaining, decorations, some ugly Christmas sweaters, and you have for yourself a very terrifying January. When we live Advent this way, our giving becomes compulsory, obligatory, resentful, sometimes anxious and prideful. And just like everything in our lives, God is less concerned with our behavior than he is the heart behind our behavior. This kind of heart posture at Christmas, the kind that brings up anxiety and resentment, leaves no room for him. No wonder the Advent season we say that we want is so disconnected from the Decembers we experience. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If that's the kind of Christmas that Jesus was inviting us into, one of rest and one of contentment, 
then celebrating his presence in our lives now and anticipating his coming again should actually do the same thing. Our burdens should be lighter when Christmas is over because we have soaked up the life that Jesus has for us during Advent. Believe it or not, we can be content at Christmas. Now, if you're still in the camp of people who think that what I've just said is very sentimental but not very practical, or maybe you think it's even downright impossible, we're not finished. Today, we're going to look at four lies that consumerism tells us about spending. And then we're going to look at the truth of what God says about spending, and at the end, share some practical ways that we can live that out. But first, the four lies. The first lie that consumerism tells us is that it's about giving, not getting. Now, I know at first that seems a little tricky because this seems true. It's better to give than it is to receive. Jesus himself said that. Because of the way that our Judeo-Christian values have impacted Western culture, you don't have to be a believer to think that giving is better than getting, or at least want to think that giving is better than getting. And advertising agencies have really capitalized on this. I watched several online ads this week, and none of them were geared to the recipient. They were geared toward the giver. So I want to give you just a few taglines from some of these ads and see if you can guess which company these commercials belong to. Here's the first one. Give something only you can give. You know what that one is? Coca-Cola. Here's another one. Believe in the wonder of giving. That's Macy's. Here's another one. Share the joy. That's Apple. And then one more. Giving just got better. Now, this is funny to me. This is Taco Bell. Uh, There's only one thing that I think of that Taco Bell gives you, and I'm not sure anybody wants that. Well, clearly the advertising world has figured out that not only is giving better than receiving, it sells better too. And while Jesus was right when he said that giving is better than receiving, we've completely polluted his intention around Christmas. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 2. After the birth of Jesus, a group of wise men follow a star that appears in the sky to a house where Jesus lived with his family. And in Matthew chapter 2 verse 9 The scene is explained this way. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The wise men see Jesus. They realize who he is. They're so overjoyed that they open up their treasures. They lay them at his feet. And while giving is better than receiving, our giving is in response to what we've already There's nothing compulsory about that kind of giving. There's no should attached to the wise men's giving, just like there shouldn't be a should attached to ours. If you look at the way that they presented their gifts, It illustrates that there wasn't any comparison between them because they presented different things. And the same can be true for us. I would argue that generosity 
True generosity is always the overflow of what we've already been given by Jesus. Now, it's absolutely wonderful to see the look on someone's face when you give them something they really want, and that in itself is not bad. But as a follower of Jesus, do you know who generosity has a longer standing with? God. Long after your kids and coworkers and friends forget the toys and the sweaters and the cookies that you've spent your time and money on, God remembers. Our spending should always be in pursuit of His pleasure first, always. We are to surrender all of ourselves to Him, even the way we spend at Christmas, because He first surrendered Himself to us. So, line number one is it's about giving, not about getting. But the truth is, we give generously out of the overflow of what we've already been given. Line number two, contentment is achievable. Now again, this is a little slippery because at first, it actually, we actually do believe that contentment is possible, but it's the word achieve there that's interesting. For most of us, if we were honest, contentment is dictated by nothing more than the right set of circumstances. And around Christmas, those right set of circumstances change because we're inundated with consumerism. And consumerism sets the bar higher, and suddenly, contentment is something that you have to strive just a little bit harder for. Commercials and 50% off sales and billboards and holiday parties, they all scream the exact same thing. You don't have enough, fix it. And suddenly, what you might not even thought about before becomes overwhelming, overwhelmingly loud in your head. Uh, things like, you need the right decorations to be able to host. If you love them, you'll find a way to pay for it. There's a sale. She needs a phone. Go buy it now. Your family needs to send out Christmas cards like the Joneses down the street did, but, but you're a week late. What are you going to do about it? You need more money, otherwise you're not going to be able to keep up with what all your friends are doing this Christmas. You see, contentment becomes something that you could achieve if you just had a tiny bit more. Philosopher Immanuel Kant famously said, give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything won't be everything. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul laid out the secret to contentment. In chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul is very clear here. Circumstances don't dictate his contentment. They don't have to dictate ours either. The thing is, contentment is much like power. It has to come from a source. So if it's not circumstances that we're standing on, what is it? One of Jesus' contemporaries, a philosopher named Seneca, reflected a commonly held belief in ancient Rome when he said, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Rome was on to the fact that 
circumstances couldn't be the ground that you stood on for contentment. And honestly, most of America knows that too. Probably around 15 years ago now, there was a book that was published called The Secret. Uh, you may have be familiar with it. It sold over 30 million copies because it answered the same question that Seneca was trying to answer. And basically the summary of the book is, circumstances don't dictate your contentment, you do. If you think good thoughts, good things will come to you. The problem is, Seneca, who believes something very similar, actually commits suicide in his quest for contentment. And the secret, it's not even remotely as popular as it was when it first came out. See, if, if you are the source of your own contentment, then you are on equally shaky ground. In verse 13, Paul concludes his statement about his ability to be content with what the real secret actually is. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret of contentment. Jesus himself, the one we celebrate during Advent, is the one who is the source of our contentment. And as we practice surrendering ourselves to him, we receive from him what we need to embrace whatever challenge, whatever longings that we face. Now, this verse is not the manifesto that a lot of people use it for. That Jesus gives us the power to make our circumstances good. It's not saying you can do whatever you want because you know Jesus. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying you can be content no matter what circumstances you are because of Christ's power. But Paul here was also clear. Contentment takes practice. It's not like taking a drug and being overcome with it. Contentment is a heart posture that we grow into daily as we ask the Holy Spirit to lead us, even in these places of deep longing. And this is especially good for those of us who find ourselves in places like this around Christmas, because I think places of longing go unacknowledged by our consumerist world, because we all just want to be happy. Everyone tells us you just got to be happy around Christmas. But maybe for you, the last few Christmases haven't been happy. Maybe you find yourself deeply longing for Jesus to return. And maybe you feel that way this Christmas. Maybe you don't get to see your kids as much as you want. Maybe you wish you were married. Maybe brokenness in your family is making it nearly impossible to think about anything else. Maybe you have wounds or you're experiencing new wounds and new challenges that you don't know how you're going to get through and you just want to be done with it already. Longings are not necessarily evidence of a discontented heart. Some of you need to hear that. Your longings are not evidence of a discontented heart. It's what we do with our longings that make the difference. Do we lay them down at the front of Jesus knowing that he's the one that can fill the parts of us that are broken even as we long? Or do we cover those parts up and do we try to bury them even in the purchases that we make around Christmas? Contentment is not something we achieve. The truth is, it is a heart posture that is practiced in the presence of Jesus. Lie number three, more is better. 
Located in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in Asheville, North Carolina, sits the Biltmore Mansion. It is the largest privately owned home in the United States. It's 178,926 square feet of floor space. The Biltmore has 250 rooms in the house, including 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, 65 fireplaces, and three kitchens. The entire estate covers approximately 8,000 acres. It is absolutely remarkable. Using French Renaissance as inspiration, the house's exterior is built of Indiana limestone. Inside are several stone archways with ceilings of sculptured wood and multifaceted glass. There's a marble centerpiece and a bronze fountain sculpture. The second floor is accessed by a grand staircase of 107 steps, spiraling around a four-story wrought iron chandelier. And as you move from room to room, it seems to get more and more elaborate. The Biltmore Mansion was decorated under the assumption that more is better. By the end of the tour, it feels like the rooms kind of all run together. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. And you begin to grow numb to the excessiveness. And I think the way that we operate around Christmas is a lot like the way that people walk through the Biltmore. Because everybody else is doing it, we become numb to the excess that we're actually living in, and we try to claim that the excessive amount of stuff that we have is really abundance. And there's this subconscious tape that plays in the back of many of our heads that tells us that how much you give is directly related to how much you love someone. So the more you love someone, the more that you spend on them. And I know that probably seems silly when you compare it to the opulence of the Biltmore Mansion. But if you're a parent in this room, my guess is you've wondered if your kids are going to feel something like resentment when they look at social media on Christmas morning and and they see what their friends got. And my guess is you might wonder, "Will will my kids feel like I love them enough because of what I gave? If you don't have kids or you don't have a family of your own, I bet you've wondered if you've given enough so people remember you. It's not just that more is better, more is safer. Because losing the comparison battle sounds awful and it sounds painful. In Scripture, though, excess and abundance aren't the same thing. God is the God of abundant blessing and provision. Spiritual and physical abundance, though, is meant to draw the recipient of the blessing to their knees and thanksgiving. This happens over and over and over again. Places of abundance in our lives are constantly being renewed in thanksgiving to God. God's presence never grows old like a a stone archway. God's abundance creates no guilt, no shame, no debt, no panic. God's abundance brings peace, and it points people's eyes to him. Excess, though, is the opposite. It's linked to greed and selfishness and gluttony. It makes us think that what we have is not enough. It makes us the opposite of grateful. Excess is the enemy of contentment. In Proverbs 34, verses 7 through 9, there's a prayer by a man named Agur. And he says, two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. 
Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I think that's the prayer that we need to be praying for ourselves and our family around Christmas. Agur is praying here to strike the balance between feeling so much need that we end up dishonoring God so we sustain ourselves and feeling such a lack of need that we think we can do it on our own and we don't need God. When the point of our whole celebration at Advent is to turn our eyes back to Jesus, excess can come in the way of our worship. So I think this prayer is a good litmus test to figure out if spending more is better for you this Christmas. Will what you're spending on make you more aware of God's abundant provision and blessing in your life? Or will it make somebody else more aware of God's provision for them? In other words, will it help you and the people around you be content? Or is there guilt or fear or resentment or shoulds or panic attached to your spending? If any of those feelings are attached to when and where you swipe your credit card, then perhaps spending less will bring you new contentment. Lie number three, more is better, but the truth is excess is the enemy of contentment. Lie number four, there is no time like the present. Recently, I was on Amazon purchasing some Christmas gifts. I knew exactly what I wanted to buy, so I thought this would be quick and easy, a few clicks, and then I'm done. But Amazon does this thing where you start getting these little things that pop up, these headings like, you might be looking for, or gift ideas for you, or recommended for you, or this one's the killer, daily deals, okay? And you see something you want, and you see that it's 67% off, and that this deal expires in six hours, and you convince yourself, it's never going to get any cheaper than this, now's the time. And you forget that this entire endeavor started, not with getting a gift for yourself, but for somebody else. Now, I know that you've never had an experience like that, and I'm the only one that has these surges of greed, but... As I prayed for contentment in that moment and I just put my phone down, I realized how easy it is to fall for the lie that there's no time like the present. Get your stuff now. This lie is the reason why people get trampled on Black Friday. It's the lie, it's the reason why we we can't celebrate Thanksgiving without lining up to buy new TVs to replace our old TVs. This lie is the reason why shopping malls are are full the day after Christmas, and it's the second biggest shopping day of the year. Uh, There's a term that's been coined for this called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. And consumerism capitalizes on the FOMO every one of us experiences, which is why we spend more money than we planned on things that we just don't need. And I can tell you that some of my biggest financial regrets have come when I made an impulsive decision because I was afraid of missing out. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I know that most of us wouldn't say that we're actually devoted to our money around Christmas because most of the money we spend is on other people, right? 
for me, the reality of this verse hits home when I'm confronted with the lie that there's no time like the present. And something that I want, even if it's for somebody else, is right at my fingertips. Because it's in the moments of panic and hurry that I'm quickest to serve a master other than Jesus. God is not a God of chaos, of frenzy, of anxiety. God came to bring us peace. The fourth lie is there's no time like the present. But the truth is, Jesus is my master, not the fear of missing out. So those are some big lies that keep us from spending less at Christmas. But, but I would guess that most of you are still stuck in that place where you're wondering, okay, I see the problem, I see the lies, but what am I supposed to do about it? How do I actually move forward when it feels like I'm stuck? Contentment may be possible, but right now, I don't see any way forward. My, my list is too long. My desire to please people is too intense. And if I don't buy people things, I'm going to feel guilty. And honestly, feeling guilty now feels worse than being in debt later. And listen, that is a very real and honest emotion. The desire to avoid guilt is huge. So how can we truly be content at Christmas? First, I acknowledge that we have people here in all different kinds of financial situations. Some of you have a lot, and it doesn't really matter if you spend a lot at Christmas because you're not going to feel it in January no matter what happens. And there are some of you who are barely making ends meet, and that email that you got earlier in the week about pitching in for the, the gift for the teacher uh, at your kid's school already puts you over your budget, but there's no way you can say no because the email went out to everyone. And there are some of you who find yourself someplace in between. Regardless of where you're at financially, your hands aren't tied. Contentment has nothing really to do with a dollar amount attached to it. It has to do with what you're practicing with your money and your heart posture with Jesus. Are you making intentional decisions this Christmas? Decisions submitted to God so that he can dictate what's most important. Or are you owned by the guilt and the rush and the pain and the pressure of consumerism? Consumerism doesn't have to have the last word at Christmas because God already does. And in our frenzy, we can miss the moments that God wants to breathe his life into us because we're too worried about getting things finished. So as we practice what it looks like to live in a way where we're spending less this Christmas, I want to close by sharing some practical tips that I'm trying to learn. First, dare to disappoint people. I absolutely hate disappointing people. But if I make a decision out of fear of disappointing someone, it's never a decision that's made out of generosity. It is always driven by guilt. And this is especially hard for those of us who are parents who don't want our kids to be disappointed. But by spending less on them, maybe that's a very cool way for you to be able to divert their eyes back to Jesus. Perhaps spending less on them is a way to teach them that they're not entitled to things. And that a spirit of generosity is what's most important. So perhaps you can start a new tradition in your home where you sponsor a child for morning glory or you uh, give to our harvest offering to help meet needs in our community. Sometimes disappointment 
births something better in the long run. Dare to disappoint people. Second, pause in the panic. When you feel like you have to buy something right now or it will never happen, or you have that moment where where greed or guilt completely overwhelm you, pause. Just take a breath. I know it sounds silly, but, but just ask, God, do I need this? Is this decision going to help me love you and love people better? Because if that's our goal, to, to love God and, and to love others, then even our finances and our spending at Christmas should reflect that. If the answer to those questions is ambiguous, then wait 24 hours. You'll know it's worth it if 24 hours later you still think it's a good idea. Most of the time, you probably won't even remember. Third, educate yourself. The products we buy are often made in places and under circumstances that we don't know and don't care to know about. So actually educate yourself about the companies that you're voting for with your money. Because when you figure out that some of the cheap things you're buying are made at the cost of humans you'll never meet, there's a chance that those things will become less attractive. Educate yourself. Fourth, accept generosity. When someone gives us something around the holidays, we get this feeling of, oh, I've got to give something back. Now, part of that is probably because we we love that person and we want them to know that we love them, but sometimes that desire to give back is rooted in pride because accepting gifts without without reciprocating that requires humility. And Americans are really bad at accepting generosity because we don't like to be the one in need. Practice humility by accepting without the obligation to reciprocate. And if you give somebody a gift, practice humility by not expecting anything in return. Give generously out of the overflow of the abundance that God has given to you and leave it at that. Fifth, think a little harder. One of the best gifts that I ever received was from my grandfather. He had built a a basketball backboard He had painted it, he had attached a rim to it, attached it to a pole in our backyard. It wasn't expensive, but every time I was out back shooting baskets, I couldn't help but think of my grandfather and the memories that we had together. There are some ways, if you think a little bit more, you can create something really precious for somebody. And lastly and most importantly, if contentment is what you're really after this Christmas, make spending time with Jesus your most important Christmas activity. Again, the the Advent devotionals that we passed out, the family guides that we have provided for you are easy and tangible ways to do that. Another way to do that is at the end of your day, just review things. Walk back through what you did throughout the day and ask God to enter that with you. It's in those moments where we invite the presence of God into where we are and what we're doing that we experience the most contentment. And even more, we can expect an overflow of our contentment that impacts the way that we even spend our money. So don't miss the invitation we have this Advent to spend less and receive a heart posture of contentment. It is possible at Christmas. We might just have to spend a little less. Let's pray together.
God, I pray that this season we would trust the truth of your word over the lies that our culture tells us. And first, God, we just admit and acknowledge that that's a very hard thing to do. Because everywhere we turn, the voices that, that are shouting at us that more is better. God, it's easy to believe that. It's easy to try to play the comparison game. So God, today, I pray that we would receive the abundance that you have given us and receive that whatever we do is a response to your goodness and your generosity in our lives. God, you have been so, so good to us. And so my prayer today is that we would be content, truly content, knowing that our contentment does not come from external circumstances. Our contentment doesn't even come from ourselves, but our contentment is found in Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that like the Apostle Paul, we could say whatever circumstance I find myself in, I am content. Whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, because the posture of my heart is the, formed by being in the presence of Jesus. And God, if there are people here who are struggling with being content, if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, God, I pray that they would realize that it starts right there by accepting Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, would you change us from the inside out? God, the gospel changes every facet of our life, including the way that we spend. And I pray that we would honor you this season, that we would savor above everything else your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.